As I pondered what to speak about this morning, I could not help but consider the recent transition at Evangelical Fellowship Church. This congregation has said more than one difficult and unexpected goodbye to people that you love in the last few months. And those sorrowful experiences, I think, cut deeper during the holidays. And I don't know about you, but I believe that the Lord despises the fake Pollyanna spirit that expects Christians to ignore trials and tribulations. And um, I don't know, I don't think there's anyone like that here, but I've met people like that, that if you have a problem or a trial, you just, you you can't think about it. You, You should shut it down because that's somehow not trusting God or something like that. Um, the reality is that God is a God of truth, that he offers consolation in such times, and Jesus was a man of sorrows himself. The scripture says, acquainted with grief. So this morning, I would like to take a tour through the book of Job and examine the Bible's teaching on handling grief, loss, disease, financial ruin, uh, all of these things that we're seeing in our world and will always be in our world right until Christ comes. Scripture teaches that our Lord... Um, when he was on this earth, experienced many of these things. Now, Job was a righteous man who endured much without a specific explanation as to why his life included so much pain. However, God spoke directly into Job's sorrow by giving him a fresh perspective on the meaning and purpose of life itself. And that's what I need. That's what we need as believers. One of the things that I think makes the book of Job so fascinating is the window it offers into a truly ancient time. Job may be the earliest book in all of Scripture, and the events it records are likely sometime between the the period that Abraham lived and Moses lived. We don't know exactly. But the references it makes correlate more with Genesis than any other book of the Bible. Uh, There's no mention of the Mosaic Law, right? Um, The children of Israel, nowhere mentioned in the book. Uh, Job's friends, like him, believed in the true God. Even though they were from different areas, there was no polytheism or paganism yet. So no mention of of false gods or idols uh, in the book. I mean, you have Satan, but but you don't have people worshiping in a blatant way uh, idols dedicated to Satan. Um, You have references to Leviathan and Behemoth in Job 40 through 41 that indicate dinosaurs roamed the earth at the time. At least some were still around. Uh, of course, th- there's challenges to this by uh, more liberal scholars. And in fact, liberal scholars will try to date it later and, um, and, and say all kinds of things about it. But, but the, the best evidence we have suggests that th- this is a very early book. And there is also archaeological evidence to suggest the names like Job and Bildad, which is who, who's one of Job's friends in the book, are found in texts from around 2000 B- uh, B.C., So the Jewish tradition attributes this book to Moses, but it is likely an account that passed down to Moses, perhaps originating with Job himself. So so Job could have written this book or or, or could have written parts of this book uh, because they they do reflect his own experience on this earth. Um, So so we don't know exactly uh, how this book came into uh, being part of the canon, but the Jewish tradition holds that this has been part of the scriptures for a long time. And it records events that stretch back to uh, the early period of this earth. Now, while the story is ancient, the lessons it teaches us, though, are timeless. Human nature doesn't seem to change. And Romans 15, 4 states that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instructions 
so that, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Spirit, we might have hope. So Job is written to us. Even though the world that Job uh, speaks of is much different than ours, they didn't have computers and technology and nuclear missiles and all the things we worry about. They, they didn't have cars. They didn't have, um, you know, television and entertainment the way that we do. I mean, there's so many things that are so different, but yet human nature is the same, and we still deal with the same basic struggles in life. Now, some of you need to hear this truth that we're going to talk about today because perhaps you're currently fighting, uh, even during the holiday season, when you're not supposed to be. You're supposed to be happy, right? Joy to the world. But you're, you're fighting anxiety. You might be fighting depression in your own life. Uh, there's others here who some of you may wonder you know, why you came to church this morning because life is going pretty well. And you would not rather consider the darker side of life. But the reality is we need God's comfort during all seasons of life. And if you have not experienced trials, you will, right? We all do. There's valleys in life. Job's life actually was going pretty well until one day everything changed. Let's turn to Job chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 3. Job 1, 1 through 3. It says that there was a man in the land of Uz. Not Oz. Uz. Okay? You just make sure people know. Whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Now, unlike today, names in the ancient world signified something important about a person. Sometimes they do today, too, but less so. The name Job is associated with a root word that means to be hostile to. Other derivatives include terms translated as enemy and enmity. So ancient Israelites would likely have understood Job's name to mean he was hated or persecuted. Job lived in the land of Uz, which we know from Lamentations chapter 4 is associated with what became the land of Edom, and we know where that is. Uh, it's south of the Dead Sea, would include parts of modern Israel and Jordan, including the ancient city of Petra. Now, the term uh, translated greatest attributed to Job likely refers to Job's wealth and influence, while the word for blameless refers to Job's innocence. So he's a wealthy man, he was an innocent man. And in chapter 29, uh, Job describes himself as a man who commanded respect, a chief, he says, a king among the troops. He was the kind of person people sought in order to receive comfort. He was a friend of God, it says. Uh, he helped the poor. He opposed the wicked. And in verse 5 of chapter 1, it says that Job offered burnt offerings in order to cover the sins of his children. So before he experienced significant trials, Job occupied the rare position of being excessively rich and moral at the same time. That's kind of a lot of the times, rich people don't tend to be moral, right? And moral people don't tend to be rich. Obviously, there's many exceptions to this, but, uh, but Job is, is certainly one of the greatest exceptions. And this enabled him to gain the admiration of everyone in his region. So practically speaking, before these trials that we're going to read about took place, Job sat at the top of the known world until one day. Verses 6 through 12, let's read that together from chapter 1. 
Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And we know from later in the book that the term here, sons of God, when they came to present themselves, is referring to angels. So Satan shows up in a procession of angelic beings before the throne of God. Now, some may ask, you know, what was the purpose of, why, why was Satan there in the first place? What's he doing with these angels in the presence of God? And I think that's a reasonable question because Satan had already made himself at this point an enemy by rebelling against God, along with a third of the angels, Revelation says. Uh, he attempted to usurp God's position. Isaiah 14 talks about that. And he cascaded mankind into sin by possessing the serpent who tempted Eve. So not exactly high on God's list, right? But he's, he wants to be in the presence of God for some reason. Now, we generally do not desire to be in the presence of an enemy, especially one who is more powerful than us, unless we have a strategy for defeating our enemy. And that is likely the motive here. Generally speaking, Satan's goal is to attack God. And because he cannot directly do this, he will attack the creation God loves most, you and me. Satan directly opposes God's will for us at every point. While Jesus came to bring life, abundant life, it says, Satan comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10.10. Luke records the account of a woman who had a sickness caused by a spirit for 18 years, which means Satan can cause physical affliction. He is capable of causing physical, though, as well as spiritual harm. Where the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, Satan deceives the whole world, Revelation 12 says. Paul says Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4, and tempts Christians to sin, 1 Thessalonians 3. Jesus said he produces false converts in our churches, Matthew 13. These are all some of the activities, and this isn't comprehensive. These are just some of the things that Satan does to human beings, to you and me, people we know. At least he can do those things. Now, because Satan knows his time is short, since God is too powerful for him and his day of judgment is coming, John 16, Jesus talks about this, the only thing he can do in the meantime is attempt to deceive, destroy, and accuse human beings that are made in God's image. Revelation 12.10 portrays Satan as the accuser of our brethren, who accuses them before our God day and night. And this is what he did to Job. So just think about this. What, what you're reading here in the account uh, given to us concerning Job is what Scripture says Satan does before God concerning us. He wants to accuse us of things. He wants to, con to, to show God that uh, we're not worthy of forgiveness, 
to convince us that we're not worthy of being forgiven, to uh, try to bring about the sense of guilt in us that mistrusts God and thinks that we have to do it on our own. We have to save ourselves, right? Uh, he wants to separate us from God. He wants to uh, take away God's glory that he receives from us. And, and this is, um, I, mean, I think it's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's First Peter that talks about Satan uh, roaming around like a roaring lion seeking to destroy us, right? Now, the accusation here is that Job only followed God because he received a reward for doing so. He did not actually love God. He simply used God for his own benefit. And if God would cease to bless Job, then Job would not love God anymore. He wouldn't be this righteous, noble man. Now, it was all a farce. It wasn't real deep down. It was just a facade. That's what Satan is saying. And Satan's also saying something else that's even more serious. He's attacking God's character. Because if what Satan said was true, God cannot be all-knowing because one of his supposed followers actually deceived him. Right? Think about it. If, if we are able to deceive God, to, to uh, try to um, prove to God that we're good and we're noble and we're righteous and we love him and we don't, <laughs> who's the one who's fooled? It's God, right? So if God can be fooled, he's not really God. Satan is trying to also expose what he thinks is a weakness in God. Now, to prove Satan to be the liar he is, God grants him authority to destroy Job's possessions. Verses 13 through 19 tell us what happens next. It says, now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. This would be a, a rival group that, that came in and, and stole, right, of thieves. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, this, this does uh, give us a little insight into the way that Satan works. Satan uh, many things that we uh, would attribute to natural disaster or to human um, sin can also be attributed to Satan at times. We don't always know when those times are, right? Uh, there's certainly enough sin and we live in a cursed world, but there's also the possibility that Satan is behind some of these things. At least he was for Job. Now, in the course of one day, think about this, Job lost his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his camels, his servants, and his children. One day. One conversation, really. I mean, it's, it, one servant comes and another comes while the, the, the first servant is already there. So this, this is in the span of like, you know, this, could, this is in the span of a few minutes he's hearing all this news. Um, Satan did not waste any time. He, he's roaming the earth. It almost sounds like he's bored, right? He's just roaming the earth. And God gives him the go ahead. Yes, you can take the possessions of my servant Job. And he's there. He does it right quick. 
Yet, in response to all of this, Job worships God, despite the feelings of deep, deep grief he has. And I think I should note, um, I think it's safe to presume that since Job was a righteous man, his family would have been taught the righteousness that, uh, that he had. And it's likely he would see them again in heaven, right? They're not gone forever. At the same time, though, that is, that is an incredibly deep grief to know that the rest of your life, none of your children who, who you raised, who you offer sacrifices for daily, they're not going to be around. Yet Job worshiped God in the midst of this trial. Verses 20 through 22 says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. And the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, Job's response demonstrates a broken heart, but a heart of faith nonetheless. God did not owe him anything, and everything he did enjoy were blessings and ultimately belonged to God, not to him. Job did not know it at the time, but God, in that moment, triumphed over Satan. He should, Satan's plan was foiled because of Job's reaction. In chapter 2, verse 3, God rebukes Satan. He says, Job still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. However, Satan did not give up. It says that he answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. So Satan says, well, we just didn't go far enough. He, he could lose his possessions and still bless you, but you take his life, that's going to be different. As a result, Satan smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a pot sh uh, shirt, it says, to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Um, speculation, but I often think that Satan left Job's wife around because he knew that she would help him out <laughs> in his purpose here. Um, because uh, presumably, I mean, he could have taken Job's wife, but he thinks, no, she, she's better off staying there. She'll, she'll reinforce what I'm trying to uh, inflict upon Job. So if you think about it, I mean, everyone in his life, is, his children are gone. Uh, we're going to read about his friends in a moment who, they're, they're no help. And his own wife, his best friend, is basically telling him, curse God and die, Right? Now, while we do not know what disease Satan afflicted Job with, some speculate it was leprosy, elephantiasis, or a combination of ailments. It appears that Job lived like a leper outside of the city where trash was burned using broken pottery to relieve his itching skin. He ran a fever. His skin was black. We know this from later in Job. Uh, chapter 30 talks about this, as well as chapters 19 and 9. Um, his body was em emaciated and infested with worms. He had trouble eating and breathing. His breath was so putrid, his wife could not come close to him. And his friends did not recognize him. This is pretty severe. 
This is beyond anything we've probably ever seen anyone suffer. The rest of the book focuses on making sense of the situation, uh, the situation and answering the deeper questions concerning human suffering. Sometimes trials make sense to us, right? An elderly person passes away after a full life at a ripe old age. We expect the time to catch up with us eventually. We expect to get a cold when we do not put on a jacket when we go outside. Uh, to fail a test in school when we don't study. Or to go to jail if we commit a crime, etc. We live in a world of cause and effect, action and consequence, reward and punishment. But what about when it does not make sense to us? What about when a righteous person suffers? If what God said about Job's character were true, then every other person on earth deserved what Job experienced more than Job did. He was the last person. His wife blamed God, while his friends, as we will see, blamed Job. Either God was evil by allowing an innocent man to be punished, or Job was evil and he deserved the punishment. Those are really the two options that are represented here. After Job's friends came to comfort him, they wept and sat with him for a week in silence. And finally, Job breaks the silence. In chapter 3, verse 3, Job says, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night which said a boy is conceived. Job goes on to eloquently express how emotionally distressed he was and how much he wanted to escape his suffering. He said in chapter uh, in verse, I should say, 20 through 22, why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul who long for death, but there is none and dig for it more than for hidden treasures? Job's question is the same one all of us ask in the midst of intense pain. Why? Why am I still here? Job is saying, what, what is, why does God allow me to endure so much grief? I could have avoided the pain by simply not ever being born. Or God could, could take away my pain by just taking my life now and I wouldn't be here to experience this. Everything that I know, that I love, that I care about, including my own body, is wasting away. It is at this point that Job's first friend, Eliphaz, offers his explanation. That's in chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Uh, he says this, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. So Eliphaz bolsters his claim again in, in uh, verses 12 through 20 of the same chapter by appealing to a frightening spirit that visited him at night and questioned whether any person or angel could meet God's standard. And, and some commentators assume and, and I'm along with them that since God later contradicts this particular explanation for why Job is enduring all this trouble, that this was a demonic spirit, perhaps Satan himself, who influenced Job's friends to give him this bad interpretation of his experiences. Because while it is true that mankind falls short of God's standard, absolutely, there is no mention of God's grace to those who repent in any of it. It's it, God seems somewhat arbitrary uh, that no one meets a standard and he's just free to um, to do whatever he wants to to punish people. And that Job somehow deserves this. Really, he must have done something wrong. For 35 chapters, we're not going to read all of them. Uh, Eliphaz, along with Job's friends, Bildad, Zophar and Elihu 
argue different facets of this point, constantly reinforcing the idea that Job is just, or that God is just, rather. Job, Job is guilty, and his circumstances are the result of divine punishment, ultimately. Bildad tells Job in, in chapter 8, verse 6, If you, Job, are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteousness. Zophar, in Job 14, 14 through 15, says, If iniquity is in your hand, Job, put it far away, and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Then indeed, you could lift up your face without moral defect, and you would be steadfast and not fear. Elihu asked, What man is like Job who drinks up derision like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? So they're all, they're all saying to him, Job, you're, you're a pretty rotten guy. That, that has to be what's going on here. And it's no wonder that Job responds in chapter 16, verse 2, and he says, quote, Sorry comforters are you all. One of my favorite quotes in the book because it, it, it so encapsulates. Man, you're my friends? Like, man, you guys are, are really uh, not helping. Now, Job did not avoid God in the midst of his trials. Instead, he desired to speak with God. He says in chapter 23, verses 3 through 5, he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to him. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive that he would, what he would say to me. So he's saying, man, I, I wish I could just talk to God right now about what's going on. And of course he could, but he wanted to hear what God had to say directly in a voice, right? Like a, a man talks to a friend. Now he knew all men sinned. He taught in 14.4, he says, who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Um, and he's talking about mankind there. Um, but yet he humbly and repeatedly asked the Lord if his suffering was the result of unconfessed sin. He tells God in chapter 6, 24, for example, teach me and I will be silent and show me how I have erred. So, he, so he's open to this. He's saying, look, if I've done something wrong to merit this, then I'm open, Lord. Show me and I'll, I'll repent of it. Yet there was nothing. He repeatedly affirmed his righteousness and intention to remain righteous. Job 23, 10 through 12 says, but he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to this, his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. He also patiently relies on God's grace to eventually bring an end to his suffering. Job uh, 19, 25 through 27 says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. So through the, the whole ordeal, you see Job's heart coming out, his hope coming out, uh, his, his longing for God, his trust. At the same time, you also see him talking about wanting to die. You see his depression. You see... Um, I mean, it's just very uh, real. His emotions are speaking. It reminds you of some of the Psalms of David. It reminds you also of Jesus in the garden. But he, does, he, he never curses God. He never, does, he never takes the advice of his wife. He never does what Satan said he was going to do. He didn't question God's character. Job knew, Job knew the cause of his suffering and that it was 
at least he knew this about it, that it was neither his own sin nor God's injustice. So he doesn't know exactly what it is, but he knew it, it wasn't those two things. Rather, there was a higher purpose that he was unaware of. And the questions that Job uh, wrestles with in this passage are the same ones that come knocking at our doors at different times in our own lives. Years ago, I had a friend who uh, professed Christ, and until she had a close friend of hers die in a tragic accident. This was in college. And that began a process of her questioning the character of God. How could God let her friend die? Um, And she became bitter, and she proved ultimately her profession to be false by rejecting Christianity entirely. In my own experience doing um, evangelism years ago on college campuses, I have discovered that most of the atheists and uh, people who promote Eastern religion reject Christianity because they want to believe they are good and do not deserve punishment. They do not want a God who would allow them to experience pain and suffering. That's really the root of it. Eastern religions tend to frame evil as an illusion, like a a deceptive mirage or an impersonal force such as gravity. We cannot make meaningful distinctions between ourselves, the universe, and the causes of the pain and suffering we experience. All is one. So practically speaking, there can be no comfort except for the fact that our pain does not really matter. Um, I mean, atheism rejects the concept of ultimate evil entirely, right? Uh, Evil is whatever we make it. Pain and suffering are therefore purposeless. Everyone experiences these things. And... Though uh, every belief system has to deal with these questions, I would like to suggest that Christianity is the only one that really offers a satisfactory explanation, even though it might not be a full explanation in every circumstance, because we don't know exactly why something bad may have happened. We at least know who our God is, and we know that there's a purpose behind it. These, These other worldviews that people often jump to because they reject Christianity because of the problem of evil... Uh, they, they offer a, a much more hopeless uh, outlook because uh, there's just no purpose in any of it. The very existence of evil, pain, and suffering provides the opportunity for God to vindicate the righteous, destroy wickedness, and redeem sinners. His wrath, goodness, and patience would not be manifested without them. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 16.4. It says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 22, expands on this, stating, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So we see in in these circumstances of even wicked people doing wicked things, God has a purpose for that. It doesn't take him by surprise. It doesn't foil his plans. They're going to ultimately be used even in his plan. Christians, we know evil, pain, suffering, those things actually do matter. They're not insignificant. The second thing that we know as Christians is that these things also refine our character, right? Paul said in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, that Christians also exalt in their tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So trials create opportunities for God to mold us into being more like Jesus. This is why Paul himself experienced what he called a thorn in the flesh. And he even says it's a messenger from Satan. Paul, Paul knew sometimes more than we know. He says, I know Satan's behind this. 
And I don't really like it. And I, I prayed three times. I said, Lord, take it away. And he said, no, my grace is sufficient. And ultimately, it was to keep Paul humble. It was so Paul would rely on God. Because what happens when we don't rely on God? When we think that we can do it in our own strength, we get prideful. We start, I mean, it, it does horrible things to us. And each one of us has that capacity. Yeah. It just takes a little bit and it grows and grows and grows. And pretty soon, we don't even look like a follower of Jesus Christ anymore because we're so about ourselves. So God brings trials to make sure that does not happen at times. We may not always understand how a demonic attack, a wicked person, or a tragedy will glorify God and build our character in the moment. Neither Job nor his wife nor his friends knew that there was a cosmic war with Satan going on that included Job's trials. But we ultimately trust that his purposes for us are good. Now, in the final chapters of Job, God provides an explanation. Yet it is not the kind of explanation we generally want as humans, right? Uh, we want to know exact details. We want to know uh, what's the cause and effect going on here. And if we were in Job's position, we might want God to explain the challenge between himself and Satan, right? Give us a little window into what's going on in the throne room there. We may want to know exactly why such a challenge was important to God. We want to know how our, uh, our thread fits exactly into the grand tapestry that God is weaving. Sometimes we get little glimpses of that, but not all the time. Instead, sometimes God does for us what he did for Job and says, trust me. He overwhelms us with himself, his design, his purpose, his power. Not only are his ways perfect, but he cannot be thwarted. He is the creator and sustainer, the sovereign ruler of everything in creation. He reminds us of our human limitations. It is not always for us to understand the mysteries of God. You might want to turn there. Chapter 38, this is God speaking. Chapter 38 in Job, verses 4 through 7, it says this. Where were you? And God is speaking from a whirlwind, I might add. I don't know what that looks like, but... Often God does this. He spoke through a burning bush to, to Moses. He speaks through a whirlwind here to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Yeah. So you think about a tornado in front of you and a voice is coming. I would listen if that happened. I can tell you what. Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? Since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So he's saying, from the very beginning of creation, were you there? Did you see what I was doing? Do you even understand the beginning of what I'm capable of and what my purposes are? And through chapter 41, he highlights the wonders of the seas, the stars, the weather, and the animals. Instead of providing concrete answers to Job's predicament, he asks Job's question, questions he cannot answer because they're beyond his limitations as a finite man. Things like, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Or can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope on his nose, pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make supplications to you or will you speak, will, will speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for your servant forever? And Leviathan's a, a, a huge animal. And, and these overwhelming descriptions reminded Job of his own significance. I mean, he probably lived in an area where he didn't even see the ocean, let alone know the springs of the deep. And by the way, there's a, there's a couple of things like this I won't highlight today, but 
even in this passage here about the springs of the deep. I mean, these are things that ancient man would not have known about. And another attestation to the uh, reliability of the scripture, that this is truly from God. There's things that we're discovering now that ancient man would have had no knowledge of that Job describes, the book of Job describes. Now, he couldn't domesticate an animal, let alone control the God who made it. So consequently, Job ultimately abandoned attempts to understand and instead surrendered to God's mysterious plan. Ultimately, God helps Job trust the planner more than the plan. He says, just let me handle this, even if we don't understand. This is one of the reasons I think we can find such comfort as believers by simply going outside in the midst of challenging circumstances. And I mean outside, in nature outside. Uh, when we observe the way the birds fly, the trees grow, the sun shines, and even more the sublime occurrences such as thunderstorms or the towering height of a mountain, all of these things remind us that we have a creator who intricately designed the world according to a plan. And though it is marred by sin, it still shines forth the message of its creator and it helps us to remember how small we are, yeah. and yet how great the journey we are a part of is. Even evil, pain, and suffering serve a higher purpose that will eventually culminate in the consummation of all things. We also have the advantage of knowing a few things Job did not. We don't just possess nature. Job had access to that. He could see around him. That's what God makes use of and points to nature. We have something in addition, though. We possess a more complete revelation from God through the scripture, which tells us about another person just like Job, though more righteous, yet suffering to a greater extent. Jesus was called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, he came to the world as a child and grew in wisdom and stature, just like the rest of us. Yet he was different. Scripture teaches he was God in human flesh, sent on a mission to reconcile mankind to God. He endured suffering, the likes of which has never been experienced before or since. Like Job, he pleaded with God to take away his suffering. Though he knew it was part of God's higher plan, he trusted and obeyed God perfectly through all of it. And of course, this is not your typical Christmas time message, but we celebrate Christ's birth, obviously, at Christmas time, and the hope it brings to us through his own suffering. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Yes. Then miraculously rose from the grave, defeating death and making a way for us to live eternally with God, where there are no tears, and all will be made well. And what a day that will be. And perhaps then we will be able to say along with Job, as he says in chapter 42, verses two through six, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Have you heard? I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Let's pray.